This is a beautiful passage in our um, series, and uh, so uh, we have been going through uh, the early part of the Bible this summer, and um, thanks for the fan. It'll blow my notes all over the place. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, this portion of uh, Nehemiah is actually describing an Old Testament revival, and so... Um, uh, it's 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 describing this uh, this thing that's happening uh, among God's people. That if, if you've never heard the the, the word revival, um, you may, may may not understand what we mean when we say that. Or maybe you've heard it in other contexts, and you're thinking, oh, it's like it's when you know evangelists set up tents and then they emotionally manipulate people and stuff like that. And this isn't that's not the concept of revival. Revival usually comes when a people of God gather together for a certain purpose, and God's presence manifests, or it makes He makes Himself known to His people, and they repent, and then uh, that spreads out to the rest of the community in the city. And so that's what we pray that God would do uh, here in Toronto. That's what God we pray that God would do here with, uh, at Trinity Life. And so um, you know, Mike and I, as we've been praying and we've been saying, God, what do you? What is our role in your greater revival here in Toronto? And we know that it's this, that it's to lead you guys faithfully. It's to love you guys um, as God has called us to love you as your pastors. And it's to also lead with vision. And it's to lead with uh, leadership development. And it's to lead in discipleship. We know that this is what God has called you guys to, uh, called us to as a church. And so, um, but we also know that, you know, with that, it comes the need for rest, the need for break. And so Mike uh, and Missy, they were gone for the last three weeks. We miss you guys. You're beautifully tanned, you know. <laughs> so that's what happens when you spend all that time in Myrtle Beach and then uh, out in, in, in Europe and stuff like that. So we're so glad that you guys are home safely. Um, I was very upset at them for going to Istanbul <laughs> for uh, a day, but I'm glad that you guys made it out alive um, out of Istanbul. So we're praying for you guys. So welcome back. Um, as they're coming back, Lynn and I are getting ready to leave on our extended time off. And so Mike and I, early on, when we talked about taking some time off, we both agreed that three weeks is probably a good amount for us uh, for, for the summertime into the rest of the year. Uh, but you, as you guys know, a few uh, months ago, my mom passed away, and uh, that really triggered a lot of stuff inside of me. And so, uh, really went soul searching and asking God what was the best thing that He wanted for us in terms of health and processing some of those things, and along with some minor health issues that I've had over the past uh, year or so. And uh, through some discernment and counseling, and uh, talking to Mike and mentors and stuff like that, we uh, asked our board if we can extend our three weeks to six weeks, uh, just so we can take some really some time to to spend with one another and with my parents. I'm sorry, with my dad. And uh, so uh, the board uh, graciously gave us an extended time off. So Lynn and I will be off officially um, this Tuesday. So don't call me. No, I'm just kidding. You can call me. I just won't be your pastor if you call me. <laughs> um, and then we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back September 6th. So it seems like such a long time. Like Mike was saying, oh, three weeks seems seem so long. Like six weeks is going to be very long. And I'm like, yes, I can't wait, right? So um, we're excited about the time off. Thank you for so many of you guys. You've been so encouraging already as we announced this at our family meeting uh, a month ago. And so we just thank you and appreciate that. Rest is so important. Rest, I would say, is an antecedent of revival. Um, being in a restful state, that is. I'm not saying sleeping 15 hours a day, which some of you guys may or may not do. 
But it rests is an antecedent for revival. And I wanted to, before we jumped into the text, I wanted to talk a little bit about what revival is. Because if you don't understand what revival is, you don't know how to pray for it. You don't know how to anticipate it. You don't know how to enjoy it when it's happening. Okay? So I want to spend at least 10 minutes. I'm going to go over today. I'm sorry. I just have to apologize. It's hot in here. I'm going to go a little bit long today. But, you know, I won't be here for the next six weeks. So give me an extra five, ten minutes today. All right. But I want to spend about uh, 10 minutes talking about revival. Uh, because I think it's important that you understand the concept of it. Because if you, we don't, then we'll never know how to pray for it. And we don't know how to contribute to it. Uh, so I thought the best way to do it was to talk about it in terms of candles. I'm a candle guy. Uh, I love candles just because of the light that it, uh, you know, uh, illuminates. And so um, when you have a candle environment like this, right, um, you're, you, we aren't in charge in, in terms of revival. We're not in charge of the fire. We're not, we don't have any control of the fire lighting the candle. That's, we don't have any kind of control of that. What we do have control over is the environment, the conditions, the culture of revival, the condition for the fire. Okay? So we're not in charge of the fire. God's in charge of the fire. But we're in charge of the culture, the conditions, the environment for the fire. And this is what's uh, difficult about some of our situations is sometimes our situation um, drowns out our environment, right? And so this is stress. This is like, um, you know, whatever it is that you're dealing with. This is like personal relationship conflicts and stuff like that. And so this is the environment that we as individuals live in, okay? And so God's fire can come all day. Oh, I'm trying not to burn down Jarvis. Holy smokes! Okay. Wow. <laughs> but the environment isn't conducive to fire. I'm not going to light up another one. God's in charge of the fire, but you're in charge of the conditions. You guys are, I know, I almost burned the building. You're in charge of the conditions and the culture and the environment that the fire comes into. And I know situations can drown it out. Situations can make it very difficult for the fire to come. So sometimes God allows us to to dry out. And some of you guys are going through dry seasons. And, you know, I understand desert periods. You feel like, you know, time with Christians are annoying. You feel like time in the Bible is boring. Um, this is the condition of your state. You feel like you're doubting. You feel like... You're struggling way beyond your capacity to bear. And sometimes God allows a dry season to happen in your life. Because in that dry season, it's actually conducive for fire. Right? And so that you are in control of environment and you're in control of your condition for revival, personal revival. And I would say that the things that you are in control of, if you study any revival, if you study any movement of God, there have been three main things that have happened in revival. In your life, there are two things that you're directly in control of, and that's kindle. And so what I wanted to do was actually wanted to burn the Bible, but I know that's sacrilegious. So. <laughs> but the Bible is kindle. You know what kindling is? Kindling? Kindling, right? The Bible is kindling. And so I'm not going to rip a page out of the Bible, but I Xeroxed a page out of the Bible, uh, so I didn't feel guilty about actually ripping it up. 
And Bible in your life is actually like kindling for the fire. And it is a part of you cultivating the environment. You're not in charge of the fire. As a matter of fact, say, I'm not in charge of the fire. Say that. I'm not in charge of the fire. But I am in charge of the conditions. But I am in charge of... Thank you, Adam. I appreciate that. (laughs) And so... The Word of God, Scripture, reading the Bible, immersing yourself in the Bible, studying it for yourselves, joining a Bible study, those kinds of things. That's kindling, preparing yourself for the fire. Do you get that? All right. So what you, what you can't do is you can't, like, immerse yourself. I was going to, you know, you can't immerse yourself in other things because that's not conducive to fire. You can't just keep adding to your situation. If you're stressed already, you can't keep inducing stress. If you're, like... Um, uh, in a situation where you know it's not honoring to God, you can't keep increasing that. You actually have to dry out and allow the kindling to set in. And there's this another thing that you're in control of. You're not in control of fire. You're in control of your conditions. And that's prayer in your life. And prayer, I would say, is fuel. The scriptures is kindling. And prayer is fuel. Um, and so this is the brand that we use at home. <laughs> Don't, I'm not going to light it up. But prayer is like fuel. Again, you got to pour it on. You, you got to go. You got to pray. And sometimes you feel like your prayers don't matter, that God doesn't hear you, and you're praying for months and months and months, and you're going, and you're going, and you're going, and you feel like your prayers are being sent to an abyss. But you, that's your job. Like, that's your job. Your part in revival is not the fire. It's the conditions. It's prayer. This is what you're in charge of. So you pour fuel on it. You pour fuel on it. You pour fuel on it. And you pray and you pray and you pray. I won't set it on fire. <laughs> no. And the people from Texas say light it. <laughs> Welcome, Texans. And so God is in charge of it. Now, I don't really have to ask this question, but which environment is more conducive to fire? This is our responsibility. And whenever there's been a great move of God, it's been because the environment was set and prepared. As a matter of fact, um, Archie was studying about your old neck of the woods. Uh, There was a great revival back in 1971. It's called the Revival uh, in Saskatoon, in Canada here. And it was led by two Italian guys named the Cetera Twins. And there was a church called Ebenezer Baptist Church, a small church of about 160 people. And so they were going to have this gathering because they, their pastor had left, and so they didn't have a pastor. And so they were going to invite uh, these twins to come out and, and, and just share with the church for two weeks. So they were going to have these gatherings. And so uh, the church was actually resistant to it. But the interim pastor said, we, we need this as a church, right? We went through a tough season. We need this as a church. So the twins came. And the first Monday that they had these gatherings, a church of 160, only 70 people showed up, right? This is how resistant they were to it. And so nothing happened that first night. There was nothing going on. People's hearts were so hard. And so the twins had a hard time preaching, but they kept going Tuesday and Wednesday. By the time you get to Wednesday, it's still the same attendance, but you start seeing that some of the leaders of the church are starting to warm up to this idea that we have a need in our community. We have a need among our people. And so they keep the meeting on until towards the end of the weekend, and it starts to grow. And by the time you get to the Sunday service, the meetings are about 200 people. And you get to Monday, and then to Tuesday, and then by the time you get to the next Wednesday, it's about 600 people. 
And by the time you get to the last meeting, which is the Saturday uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the conference, um, they had to rent out the city auditorium in Saskatoon, which I don't know how, if you've ever been there at all. I don't know. Um, but it, uh, because their meeting had grown to 1,600 people in two weeks. And, and the last meeting, they said, was, it was filled with people just standing up and giving testimonies about what God was doing in their lives. See, when, when fire comes in this environment, we call it personal renewal. We call it, at Train Life, we call it transformation. Okay? But when it happens in an environment of many people, these are my candlesticks, which I won't light. But when these people are soaking themselves in the kindling, and they're soaking themselves in the fuel of prayer, and they're gathering together, and this is the other third thing about revival, is they never stop meeting. No matter how difficult, no matter how dry, no matter how boring, no matter how terrible the preacher is, no matter how bad the kids' ministry is, they never stop meeting for the Word of God, for prayer. And it's just not one people doing it, or one person doing it, or two or three people. It is the the, the body doing it. And as I was saying, Ebenezer Baptist Church, they had prayed for two years for this. And when you get this amount of people soaking in God's Word and in prayer, and God lights a match, then you have revival. And I'm just, I'm, I'm hopeful enough, and I'm faithful, and I'm just optimistic enough that in our time and in our um, season and in our city, God wants to do that with us. But he can't do it if this is the life that we live. We need kindling and we need prayer. So what I want to do is I want to spend a few minutes right now just leading us in prayer, just asking God to, he can, you ask him to send the fire. But over the next six weeks, for Lynn and I, it is vacation, it is holiday. But over the next weeks, weeks for Lynn and I, it is actually, for us, a prayer retreat, a six-week prayer retreat. We're soaking ourselves in God's Word. We're committed to praying for this. God, send your fire. We'll do our part. You do your part. What I'm asking you guys today is if you would join us over the next six weeks, Soak yourself in God's word and soak yourself in prayer and just say, God, we're doing what we can do. You send the fire. So I want to spend a little bit of time of praying over the next six weeks. You know, instead of you guys praying for us so that we'll be rested and we get a, you know, we get, you know, a lot of time on the beach and stuff. I want to pray for you guys that you would be soaking in God's word and in prayer. God, I just, right now, I know that this is not far from your heart if it's not at least exactly what you want us to do and what you want us to be about. God, I remember entering into the ministry not because we wanted to grow a big church, not because we wanted to be known. I remember entering into the work of ministry because, God, my heart was for revival. So, Lord, Lynn and I, we promise that the next six weeks, as best as we know how, will be in your word and in prayer. We're praying for the world. We're praying for our city. God, I pray you just lead us as a church. I pray that you would lead our leaders. Lead us humbly. I pray that you would stuff so many candlesticks, preparing ourselves, soaking in your word and in prayer. 
and if and when you should choose to send fire. We're ready for it. God, I commit these next six weeks to you. Send your fire. Amen. There's a parable about a an orphan lion. The lion was newly born, just came out of the mama lion's womb, and uh, just in its own goo still, hadn't opened its eyes. And it was in that moment that there was another pride of lions that came, and they attacked um, the mama lion and the daddy lion. And um, the mom, unfortunately, was killed, and the dad was able to ward off the other lions in time to grab the uh, newly born and throw it into a patch of tall grass. And then the father took off to defend uh, his newborn uh, against this pride of lion, this, uh, this group of lion. And the father never returned, never came back uh, to, the, to see its newborn. And the newborn eventually opened up its eyes and it saw it was surrounded by grass and it began to wander into the other parts of the pasture where the grass was softer. And the first thing that it saw, the first actual live uh, uh, entity that it saw was this herd of sheep. And so it began to observe the sheep. And so this little cute cub wasn't threatening at all and it made itself all the way to the herd of sheep. And then so as it felt its stomach grumbling and it observed the sheep and the sheep were eating the soft patches of grass. The orphan lion began to eat the soft patches of grass itself. And then as the sheep began to communicate, the lion began to grow and it thought itself as a sheep as well. And so it thought that in order for me to communicate, I'm going to learn the language of the sheep. So the lion began to go, bah, bah. And so the lion tried, the orphan lion tried to communicate with the sheep in that way. And so they would bat back and forth. And then, you know, inevitably the lion grew and grew and grew and it was vegan. You know, some of you guys would be glad to know that this lion was vegan. Uh, and, uh, but it still continued to grow and it outgrew the other sheep, but it wasn't threatening to them. It wasn't a threat to the sheep because it thought it was a sheep. It was a sheep lion, right? And so one day a pride of lion a group of lions, they actually came and they stumbled upon the herd and they uh, uh, chased after the herd. Some escaped. Many of them got devoured. But the orphan lion was confused because none of the lions went after it. The orphan lion couldn't quite figure out what was going on. As a matter of fact, the, the, the alpha lion of the pride was looking directly at the orphan lion. And he himself was confused. And he said to himself, why is that dude acting like a sheep? <laughs> he couldn't figure it out. And as the orphan lion was looking across the field, he f- saw for the first time somebody who looked like him. And he was so confused. In the story of Nehemiah and where we're at today in the his- history of the Bible is that God, we learned that through Abraham, God had chosen a group of people to name for a people as himself. He wanted a royal 
people. He wanted a lion people for himself. And so Abraham was the father of this nation, we learned. Mike talked about. And we also learned that Moses was actually the one that was going to form this nation into an actual civil government, and he was going to lead it into the land that they were going to be a light to the rest of the world. This was Moses' job. Moses was the people's prophet. And we learned a couple of weeks ago that King David was actually the people's king, that if you're a nation and that you are a government, then you have to have rulership. And then King David was supposed to be that ruler, for he was a servant, humble ruler for them. Then as Adam explained last week, but the cycles of idolatry, the cycles of sin, the cycles of complacency. Here's the thing, and I want you to understand something about complacency and apathy. Whenever you're complacent and you're apathetic, you don't think that there's no consequence. When you study Israel, their complacency and their apathy led to social injustice. God's greatest accusation against the Israelites, his own people, was this. You stopped worshiping me with a pure heart, and you stopped loving the poor. Your apathy, my apathy, will never go without consequences. There's always a consequence to our apathy. And so we learned that God was patient, that God let this go because he is a patient father, and he thinks about his orphan lion nation as a son, and so he's patient. And so another king, and another king, and another king, and over 400 years of this, and God is saying, if I let this continue, two things will happen. My nation will, will, be, will perish, and the light will, the light will be blown out. Or the culture of the other people will eventually take them over. So he needed to enact discipline. They suffered the consequences of their own sin. So we talked about how they actually were kicked out of their own country, the leaders primarily. And this makes me scared as a leader in God's, over God's people because in this story about God's people, it wasn't the commoners that were kicked out. It was, it was the leadership. They were the ones that were exiled into Babylon. And they spent about a whole entire generation there. And last week, uh, uh, Adam read Jeremiah 29.7, and God was saying to them, okay, guys, you're not going home, so make the best out of being here in Babylon. Build houses, marry off your children, worship me, but I promise you a better future. And so by the time you get to Nehemiah, you're two generations into the exile. Two generations into the consequences. Ezra and Nehemiah are two books that go together. They're kind of anticlimactic, all right? Because they're the end of the Old Testament, and you don't get a king. And by the time you get to Nehemiah, the people forgot that Abraham was their father. They forgot that Moses was their prophet. And then they forgot that King David was their king. They were a sheep lion. They were an orphan lion. And if I can continue on with the parable, what happened was when the alpha lion made the gaze towards the orphan lion, and he was angry inside because he saw one of his own not living up to its potential. And so the alpha lion ran towards the orphan lion, and the orphan lion was cowering in fear because he thought, I'm a sheep, I'm going to get eaten by this alpha lion. And so the alpha lion goes to him, and he grabs him, uh, or he, you know, he, he grabs him by the mane with his mouth and he drags him to the water and he takes the guy's uh, the guy he takes the, the orphan lion's face and he shoves it over the water 
And the orphan lion realizes that he looks exactly like the alpha lion. And the, alpha lion, the, the orphan lion is completely confused because he had lived his whole entire life as a sheep. And what's happening here in Nehemiah is these people, they're confused because they lived generations as sheep people. They didn't know their royalty. They didn't know their lionness. They never heard a Katy Perry song. They didn't know how to roar. <laughs> that was bad. They, they didn't know this about themselves. It was like the orphan lion was staring into the, to the, to the, to the pond, and it was startled because there was something about itself that awakened him up. And I want to I go through a couple of passages here because I want to see how, you, I want you guys to see, I want us to see how the people awaken themselves to who they were. In verse 1, it says, All the people gathered as one man. Remember, the gathering of God's people is so important. In New Testament times, we gather together, Sunday worship, in homes. This is so important for us. They gathered as one man at the water gate. And earlier, Michelle read all of these names. Can we put up those names real quick, Mindy? I think it's right around verse 4, 5, and 6. There's all these names of all these people. Uh, Mattathiah and Shema and Ananiah and Michelle's even in there. You see Michelle? Michelle, right? Uh, so these are all, and you're, who are these people? Right? Who, who are these people that are standing next to, to, to Ezra? So they gather into the square. Ezra's reading the Old Testament. He's saying, remember that Moses is our prophet. Remember that Abraham is our father. Remember that King David is our king. Remember that God is using us as a light to the world. And he's reading this, and there's stacks of men on his left and his right. And we keep going on to the next couple of verses, 7. It says, Ezra, blessed the Lord, great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yaman, Akub, Shabbatah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites. What did they do? What was their job? They helped the people to understand the law while their people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God, clearly, and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. What, what did they do? In the gathering, these group of men, these leaders, they walked around and said, Are you, do you understand what Ezra is saying? Do you understand who Moses is? Do you understand who Abraham is? Do you understand who you are? And so these men would go from group to group and making sure that people understood. Because a lot of them were second, third generation. They didn't even understand their own language. And so these guys, they were, they were, they were in charge of going around and they said, do you understand what's going on? So these guys were like, can, they were handing out the candlesticks, all right? And they were saying, I need a few more people like Jeshua and like Shani, and I need a couple more people who will be light bearers because this is who you are, David. This is who you are, Archie. This is who you are. And new guy who played drums for us today, you did awesome. Minsu, when you go to Vancouver, this is who you are. Russell, good to see you, bro. This is who you are, right? When you go to Montreal, this is who you are. And so they're walking around and they're reminding themselves that, Gable, you are a lion. That Michelle, did I give you one yet? You are a lioness. That's, uh, that Stephen, you are a leader. And so they're walking around and they're explaining all this stuff to these people. And they're making the scriptures clear. Remember, Abraham is your father. Moses is your prophet. Remember that David is your king. But there's another one that's coming to lead us. 
And so they're walking around, and this is the scene that's happening. It was as if the, the lion, the orphan lion, looked in the water, and it was starting to get, maybe I haven't been living the life of who I really am. Maybe I've been living this life. And he's realized, but I was created for this life. If I can just finish up the story about the orphan lion. The orphan lion kind of is beginning to feel anxious because it's confused. Everything about itself is being reinvented, being questioned. And many of you who have become Christians recently, a lot of your lives are being reinvented. A lot of the things that you assumed about life and society, a lot of things that you thought about what was right and wrong is starting to change because everything that you lived for before was like a sheep lifestyle. And God has said to you recently that you're a lion. You're a lioness. So this lion is confused. And so the alpha lion, being the alpha lion that he is, is even more angry at this sheep lion. And he acts in a way that is completely uncomprehensible. He takes his paw and he slashes it against his wrist. And he takes a piece of his flesh and he stuffs it down the orphan lion's throat. And the orphan lion is complete. He's a vegan, remember? Okay. So the orphan lion is completely offended by this act and this, this gross, disgusting, you know, flesh, blood, and it begins, the morsels of blood begin to trickle down his throat and goes from his throat down to his stomach. And by the time it gets to his stomach, it feels this sense of like, it's not gas. It's warmth. Something miraculous begins to happen in the pit of his stomach. And it's churning and it's churning. There's something about the taste of blood. And I don't want to gross you guys out. You know, I don't... I don't want to gross our vegetarians out. But there's something about that morsel of blood that touched his spirit and his soul, and he knew for the first time who he was as a lion. And it came back up, and the energy inside of him began to emerge out through his throat, and eventually it came out, and the lion went, and it roared for the first time. begin to weep and weep and weep. And the offline is patting him on the back and consoling him. The lion realized that he was a lion. The joy overwhelmed him. The sorrow of all the years, as much as he loved the sheep, and they were so gentle to him, he realized that he had spent all those years as a sheep and not as a lion. And as we continue to go through this passage, you'll see a similar awakening. That Nehemiah, who is the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not mourn or weep. Why were they mourning and weeping? For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They realized that, wow, this is who we are. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be greed. Stop looking to the past. 
Stop kicking yourself. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites claimed all the people say, calmed all the people, calmed them by saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And then verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and sent portions to make a great reportion. Rejoicing. Can I say that when they sent portions, what they did was they, they were the ones that had enough to eat. So when they sent portions, they were saying it to those who didn't have enough to eat, right? So when you are a person walking in your identity and destiny, don't ever, ever ask the question, will it lead to justice and will it lead to uh, the flourishing of humankind? Because we see here immediately what they end up doing is they start sharing the resources with those that don't have it. And they did that because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They realized that they were a royal priesthood. They were a pride of mine. Something inside them awoken for the first time. And as we agonize as leaders of the church and we're praying and we're saying, God, would you just awaken us to who we really are? The noise and the, the temptations are so strong to, to remain sheep people. Because sheep people are passive. Sheep people don't take risks. Sheep people act ignorant. Sheep people don't take responsibility. Sheep people don't feel pressured. Because all they have to worry about is eating their patch of grass and not drowning in the water. God, I think that's not who you are. I want to share, there was a time, and I've never experienced full-on blown revival the way that I talked about earlier. But there are two times in my life where I experienced transformation from this to this. And one of those times was when Lynn and I, we had just recently got married. And Linda realized, and I share this story from time to time, that she married a sheep boy, not a lion. And so from ages 19 was when we got married, and you can't blame me. I was 19, okay? <laughs> but you have to blame me because I was responsible for who I was. But between the ages of 19 to about 23, I was a sheep boy. I acted, I was passive. I ate grass. And as long as I didn't drown, then I was fine. And that's how I lived my life. And through a very tough and dry two years in our marriage, all we knew how to do in that season. Ladies, you need to talk to Linda about this season if this is what you're going through right now in your marriage or in your single life. But all we knew how to do in that season was throw Kindle. We just kept claiming the promises of God in our life. And we weren't even smart enough to know what it meant to make Christ the center of our marriage. But we just kept saying that we were. And it's kindling after kindling. Our church didn't know how to equip us. And so we chased after other church leaders. And we said, we're dying. Our marriage is dying. And they just all they did was they taught us how to pray. They taught us how to read the Bible to the point where eventually I'm like, if I'm going to be a Christian, and I've shared this story before, if I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to learn the Bible. As an engineer, I don't, I don't want to go into pastoral ministry. I'm going to pay my way to learn the Bible. And the two years, two years, 
God finally lit a match. He dropped it into our lives. And we have never been the same. Never been the same. There was a season where we served our church faithfully. And oh boy, did our church go through a dry spell. You know, our church went through a significantly dry spell. We served our church faithfully six, seven years into leadership, and we were just saying, God, is this ever going to go anywhere? Our pastor eventually left, and this crazy guy from California came and led our church, and we didn't know if we liked him or not because he was so crazy, and he was really extreme, but he kept pushing us, and so we said, we're going to give, if that's the guy who God's given to us to be our leaders, we're going to submit ourselves to him as if, as if that's what God wants us to do. We're not going to leave this place. And it took about three to four years that this guy, his name is Vang, he led us and he discipled us. And all he did was he taught us how to throw kindling into our lives and taught us how to pray. And there was, it was like year six, year seven into his tenure that our church, some of the greatest divides in our church, those walls began to come down. Some of the most hard-heartedest of people begin to experience the love of God in their life. And our church began to grow. And I just, we were a church of about 150, 160 people. And we grew to a church of about 200, 300 people in about two years' time. And it was as if God was saying, those years that you feel like you're wasting reading the Bible, praying, that's not wasted. Fire is coming. Fire is coming to your life but you're in control of the conditions. The fire will come to Trinity life, but we're in charge of the culture, the conditions. I don't know how else to awaken us up to the fact that if we live this way, God will not deny us a better understanding of who we are. And as we understand more of who we are, we get to live out our purpose and our destiny. I want to encourage us over the next couple of weeks as we pray and as we begin to seek God throughout the summer and in the fall. I don't know how long God is calling us to a season of prayer and kindling and, 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 uh, and gathering. It could be the fall, winter, spring. We might be back here next summer and saying, God is still saying more kindling, more prayer, more gathering. But in the midst of that, we're saying, God, send your fire. And as I close, and actually, you know, I didn't go over on time. Wow. As I close, I want to talk about some of the signs and some of the indications that revival has come. Okay. This was a mini revival. People were renewed. If you get to chapter 9, I advise you to read on to chapter 9. People begin to confess their sins. People begin to have a renewed life. Their marrying habits change because of this revival that happens. But this is a mini Old Testament revival. The real revival that came in history happened in Acts 2, that we'll eventually get to. Acts, or Acts chapter 1 and 2, Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came. And true revival broke out because it wasn't limited to just a city 
It wasn't limited to just a people. It went from 120 people praying in a house to the known world in one generation. And that continues with us. How do we know when TLC, how do we know when we're in revival? How do we know when Toronto is in revival? Number one is this, that the people of God continue to feel this palpable presence of God. Just every time they gather, they just know that God is with them. But five people gather for prayer at Starbucks, and they just feel like God is with them. Our, our Tuesday morning staff prayer time, we just feel that God is with us. Whenever we worship here, we just feel like, man, God is with us. The second sign is that people who were asleep before, they wake up. They start realizing that, wow, I lived this sheep lifestyle, but really I am a lion. I'm taking this seriously now. And it's in that process that sometimes you see what happens is that marriages are healed. Relationships are are restored. The greedy person becomes generous. The power-hungry person begins to delegate. And so in revival, it's this changing and transformation which is not one or two people, but you see this happening among other people. And because that change has happened, what happens is that they don't keep it among them. They begin to share it. Genuinely, nobody feels forced. There is no program about how to share with other people. It just happens naturally. And when we begin to sense that that's happening with us, that's when you know, oh, revival is breaking out. We can't do that, you see. We, we, you know, I think I've already established that. We, we can't make that happen. We are in charge of the environment. At least in a time of prayer and decision-making. I want to ask the question, will you be a lion people? Will you be who it is that God's called you to be? Because it's not easy. And it's not simple. And it's not conducive to your schedule. Because it requires waking up a little bit earlier to be in the Word. It requires taking Tuesdays off or Thursdays off so you can spend time praying with other people. It requires dinners with your neighbors, especially the annoying one. This is how we become lying people in our own city. God, I just um, thank you that you sent into the world what the New Testament call the Lion of Judah. Jesus, you were the gentle and meek and humble Alpha Lion. And as you get into people's faces and you do business with them, sometimes it's offensive this morning, you may feel that God is offensively dealing with you. It's not because he's angry or upset at you. It's because he sees you struggling in your sheep mentality. And he's saying, wake up. 
to who you are. Jesus, thank you that you are the gentle and the very detailed-oriented royal king lion that looks into our life and you know what's best for us. God, as we grapple with that this morning, I just want to ask that you would give us the power to let go of the sheep habits, let go of the things that are drowning out the conditions for revival and transformation. Let those things go. Ezra says to the Israelites, stop weeping and grieving over the past. Give us the strength to let those things go.